This morning's scripture text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshy. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshy? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. A little over an hour ago, Lord, Kenny put his hand on my shoulder and prayed that as this message is delivered, you would do some very decisive callings. Callings among staff, among elders, and among the lay men and women and children of this church to engagement in a vision. And so I repeat that prayer. Let my voice become a trumpet. Rallying a battalion of people to engage in a vision called planting a passion. And I pray, O Christ, that you are at the bottom of it. The one foundation that is laid. And that as we build on you, we would not build with hay and wood and stubble, but with gold and silver and precious stone. O Christ, be exalted in this vision, I pray. And in this moment, let this be a historic hour in the life of our church to which we will look in the decades to come and say that was decisive. Lord, our passion is to spread zeal for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples through your Son. We know that you believe in this with all your heart. You sent him and put him to death for the sake of this vision. That's a high price. We embrace it, and I pray that you would honor it. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish thou it. 
Through Christ I pray. Amen. So I want to blow a trumpet. And the trumpet is for a vision called Planting a Passion for God. And it is a a taking of our mission statement there on the wall and a focusing of it on a dream that will be costly, take a lot of energy, a lot of deep faith, a lot of perseverance, namely to plant a strong, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, mission-mobilizing, justice-pursuing church somewhere else in the Twin Cities. The mission of the church here is very plain, and it's a precious thing to have a plain mission. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when we say that we're going to focus this vision, God willing, on the planting of a strong, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, mission-driven, mobilizing, justice-pursuing church, we mean we want to plant a seedbed of passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. In other words, it has more and more seemed to us, that if it is good that there be a strong base from which a passion for God spreads, then it would also be good if there were other strong bases that we might be pleased to plant. And so the planting of a passion becomes another name for and yet a very important code word for the planting of a church. It's a great grace to this church to have a mission statement that's clear. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, justice issues next Sunday, racial harmony, the Sunday after that, pro-life, abortion, in all things, for the joy of all peoples, Afghanis, Somalis, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Korean. To have a mission statement that is clear has enabled us for these last about six years to stay focused in our ministry. A mission statement helps you to sort through your priorities and Say yes and no to some things and other things. It enables you to be recharged in your ministry energy when things begin to flag and you start to flounder a little bit. It keeps us riveted on God-centeredness because of that phrase, the supremacy of God. It keeps us with an urgent sense of evangelism because of that massive upfront word, spread. 
We don't exist for ourselves. We exist to spread the passion for God. So a mission statement like this is a very precious thing. It has function in ways you would never dream in the behind-the-scenes labors and life and visioning of this church. And I thank God for it. And now, our sense as leaders is that there ought to be a, a narrowing in of the focus for the planting of a passion. We exist to spread a passion, so let's plant a spreading passion. I mean, if you really want a passion to spread, you'd work hard to make a strong home base. We've got one. There couldn't be a more unified, driven leadership than there is at this church. Now, wouldn't that be good to multiply? Wouldn't it be good that there be not just us and other good, strong churches in the cities, but others that we might be pleased to plant? The planting of a passion, the planting of a seed bed for the growing of a passion. When the vision education for exaltation was born several years ago, namely the, the tearing down of that old sanctuary, the putting up of a five floor building for education and the exaltation that flows from God centered education. When that vision was conceived, just a couple of months later, a piece of it was conceived called Growing Without Growing. The meaning of growing without growing was, it's not a biblical option not to grow. Winning people to Jesus out of darkness, into light, and folding them into loving families of believers is simply a given. You're not a church if you don't do that. So we call that growing. And yet, we ask, do you have to multiply services indefinitely at one place? Do you have to build a building bigger and bigger at one place? And we said, let's pray not. And that we called without growing. And we said, let's incubate. So we were going to build a building out there in the parking lot. You remember the first drawings? That would have been nine million. You pledged six, five. That's what we're building. So we scratched that incubator. There are other ways to do that. We're not discouraged about that. In fact, God probably had much better ideas for how to incubate churches. But the idea was you incubate churches every so often and then you send large numbers of people away who have formed a common vision, have a common leader, are ready to start doing it on their own. And we want to do that this year. To plant a passion. That is a seedbed, a base of operations, a launching pad, another one of these somewhere else in the cities. Then, after some time, we had a meeting to assess growing without growing. This happened a few months ago. All church growth wisdom says this is crazy. This cannot happen. This will not happen because church planting churches don't not grow. Get all those negatives. <laughs> church planting churches, no matter how many they spin off, get bigger. Well, that's kind of discouraging to us. Exhibit A, Wooddale, right? There isn't a better church planting church in the cities.
perhaps in America, than Wooddale Church. Leith Anderson has an anointing on him for this. So we brought Leith in, sat him down. He's a good friend. Just talk to us about this. And uh, he represents the best church growth wisdom, and he said it won't happen. <laughs> well, thank you, Leith, for shooting our mission down here. And uh, so we ended that meeting feeling this. This is was this was the the tweaking of the vision and the adjusting of our mindset as elders. We said, okay, maybe it won't. Maybe you can't grow without growing. You can just grow with growing. Maybe that's true. But whether it works or not, we're committed to planting churches. That was the new thought. And our mindset shifted from crowd control to passion spreading. I mean, crowd control is, is worthy and it takes a lot of energy. We had to go to three services. So that is not ideal. We didn't want to do that. And I don't know whether we'll stay at three forever or whether we can actually buck the system and create a big enough church so that we could go back to two services. That would be a happy thing for me. I don't particularly want to preach three times on Sunday morning. I'd rather have somebody else preaching to a thousand of those people somewhere else with the same God-centered truth, with passionate worship and strong youth ministries and loving children and everybody happy to be there, sending out missionaries. That'd make me happy. So that was the tweaking and the twisting now in our little path is that we're committed to this, whether it works or not, to contain crowds. Now, my prayer this morning is that in laying out this vision, God would produce a joyful energy in us as a people. I pray that as I speak in the remainder of this message and and give you about seven reasons for why we think this is good for us and good for the nations and good for the neighborhoods and of God and honor to Christ, that there will happen in your heart while I'm speaking a resounding yes. Yes, this smells like kingdom thinking instead of just human reflection. Yes, I want to be a part of a church where something like that is happening. Whether the yes is, yes, I'm ready to go, or yes, I want to be a part of the senders of the goers, that there be a yes to the totality, that the reason I'm doing this on Sunday morning and not just on a Wednesday night or in a star article only is because it really needs to be a, a corporate yes. That's what we want to be. That's what we want energies to flow toward. That's what we want to be thinking and praying toward. And so I'm just praying that a yes will land on this congregation. Yes, this is right. So that you would feel like I do. I'm 56 as of Friday. And today David Livingston turns 56. So grab David and say happy birthday today. 56-year-olds are supposed to be on the glide path. You know what a glide path is? There's a difference between the way little planes land and big planes land. I learned on the mission field. I was flying in a little plane with... Noel, I think, and, and the pilot. I think that's all we had. 
in Cameroon. And we were going up to some village in Cameroon and chugging along. I don't know. You could see people on the ground. So that's how, that's how high we were. And I'm looking for an airport. And, uh, in the distance, I'm looking for an airport in the distance. And, uh, he says, there it is. I'm looking in the distance. I know what glide paths are. We're, this, this does not look like a glide path here. And it was, it was right down there. And he, he just went, whoosh, whoosh, just like that. I mean, I've never, ever, I mean, he must have landed that thing in 600 yards or something. I, it was just, so glide, little planes don't do glide paths. They just drop dead. I mean, that would be the analogy. <laughs> glide paths are when, you know, you're doing 560 miles an hour and you, you, you come in and coast down and, and you do about 230 miles an hour. This giant jet kind of bellying up like this. And it takes forever. You can look at the cities and all the buildings and the lakes as you come in from the west to do that. And that's the where I'm supposed to be living right now. Well, David and I, we, we have resolved not to live that way. It's not the way it's going to happen. So as we turn 56 and have maybe 10, if you're generous... 15 years to go, then we would love with you to look back in 10 or 15 years and say, it was really good to be a part of a movement of church planting, which resulted in five, maybe, strong God-centered, Christ-exalting, mission-mobilized, justice-pursuing, Bible-saturated churches. So I hope, I pray that there be a yes that lands on this congregation to say, I'd like to grow up into that. I'd like to be a part of that. I'd like to be able to say to my children, look at those churches. I was a part of that. Remember those days? Now... Here's the way I'd like to do it in the minutes we have left. I have seven reasons that I want to share with you because I think joyful energy is born of a clear vision. And if you get a clear vision of how something like this could be Christ-exalting and, and strengthening to a local church and a blessing to a city or cities and an honor to Jesus, then energy comes. And you know, energy is a precious thing. Spiritual energy is a precious thing because you've perhaps all been part of churches where it's gone and you just, everybody looks tired. You walk in and everybody's tired. The worship feels tired. It's just tired praying and tired preaching and tired everything because it's not just because people stayed up too late on Saturday. It's because the vision and the energy for it is just gone. I do not take this lightly. I have tasted moments in my life, hours, days, when it's gone. They are terrifying days to a leader. And you cry, oh God, oh God, come. Oh God, restore. Oh God, reignite. Because if I go out, a lot of people go out. Let's give these now. Here's number one. 
It's probably the least important of all. In the almanac of the Christian world, I read this statistic. In 1900, there were 27 churches for every 10,000 people in America. In 1990, there were 12 churches for every 10,000 people in America. So when you think of, oh, goodness gracious, aren't there a lot of churches in America? Aren't there a lot of churches in the Twin Cities? Well, the fact is there are a lot of churches. But if you ask how many is too many, I doubt that we're at the saturation point for strong, God-centered, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting, mission-mobilizing, justice-pursuing churches. I just doubt that we're at a saturation point for such churches. The reason, by the way, that that statistic isn't as devastating for the populace as it sounds is because there's so many big churches today and the average size of the church tripled in the 20th century so that lots of people are going to larger churches rather than fewer people going to church. The number of people going to church in America has held steady at 40% or so every weekend for decades and decades, which, by the way, is an incredibly high number in the West. You don't come close to that in England or Germany. There you have one, two, three percent in church on a Sunday morning. America, for all of our pagan life, is an unbelievably churched nation. Which means, by the way, there better be in this whole process a lot more shramics coming along. Because no way am I dreaming if we plant a church here. Good, we've done what you're supposed to do in church planting. Because there are nations and peoples who have nothing of what we have here. So when I dream church planting, I dream missionary sending church planting. That's the kind of churches you want. If they aren't the kind of church, we're not interested. We have work to do at home. And by the way, I'll put in another thing here that I, I'm just looking for ways to put in all my thoughts If someone says, we're not good enough to plant a church, well, that's absolutely right. We don't have so many things figured out here. It's amazing. We do so many things badly here. It seems absolutely presumptuous to plant a church. But here's my reason for moving ahead. Number one, it will never be otherwise. I expect to die regretting. But let's put it positively. You know, one of the reasons we don't do something so well, me and the other leaders at this church have our limits. Create another possibility and they'll do some things right that we don't do right. If you create another strong possibility out there for the Holy Spirit to land on and raise up new leaders, they may start doing some things right we don't get done right. That's what gives me hope that an imperfect church can plant a church that becomes better than us. I can point to some. Greg Heinz does things better than we do in Hudson. If you live out that way, go to that church. Greg was a, an intern here. He picked up the vision. He took it. He re-enfleshed it. It's not Bethlehem out there, but it's got the same God as Bethlehem out there. And I love that idea of multiplying vision and let the skin take care of itself. Wineskins can be of all different kinds. That was two or three or there's only one. There aren't too many churches. Number two. 
Planting a passion for God, a strong, God-centered church, will not diminish our commitment to education for exaltation, but strengthen it because people want to get behind the building of a building when there's a vision bigger than the building. Buildings as buildings are not attractive to any mature Christian. Buildings as centers or bases of operation or seed beds for the planting of the passion in little kids who grow up to be mighty oaks of righteousness and young people who become counter-cultural and live out their lives for Jesus and adults who on their glide path are full of energy for Jesus. That kind of building we're willing to get behind. And that's what Education for Exaltation debt-free is supposed to build over there in the next 18 months where that old sanctuary is. So I do not anticipate, though it's a big risk and probably some queasy souls in this church will fear a big threat to say, this year, we need two and a half million dollars to finish that building. You're going to send away hundreds of people? Well, God willing. It's going to strengthen our commitment to that, not reduce it. Number three, Planting a passion for God, a new, strong, God-centered church, would capture the underused leadership of our church. This church, for whatever reason, is dense, thick, deep, with amazing men and women of biblical depth and passion and leadership abilities, many of whom are underused. And... Planting another church that cries out for leadership is going to move those people into more and more flourishing and leadership. And that's healthy. That's good. Fourth, planting a passion for God will increase the urgency of intentional leadership development. That almost sounds like a contradiction to what I just said, but it isn't. Because in order to sustain a church planting movement, you have to have new children's workers, new youth workers, new elders, new worship leaders, new people skilled and gifted in outreach, new everything, new leaders, so that there's a a strength and a depth You can't just take brand new believers and say, now go run a church. There has to be some roots to this thing. And God's been breeding that kind of people for years at Bethlehem. This place is thick. And yet, you send off one, strong. You send off another, strong. It's going to start looking maybe a little thin. But it won't if that building accomplishes what a building can accomplish. Namely, a base where there is constant renewal. Constant building, and we'll become, we'll have to become much more intentional about raising up elders and raising up worship leaders and raising up a David and a Sally Michael for every church and a Brad and a John for every church, a Chuck for every church. Every church needs to have strong leadership. They don't come out of nowhere. They need to be trained up, released, empowered. Number five. A new, strong, God-centered church would breathe fire into the smoldering embers of evangelism because the fresh feeling of the new church for outreach is a given. 
They're not going there to gather the Christians in that community from the other churches. God forbid that that's why they would go there. Rather, they go to a community in order to be known in the community among the unchurched people as a light for Christ. And they will feel, we got to make it known that we're here. we got to go knocking on some doors. We've got to hang some things on doorknobs. We've got to get some things in newspapers. We've got to be known and we've got to be winsome. We've got to be welcoming. We've got to be Christ to these folks. We can't just plop ourselves down here and hope the Christians show up. What use is that? So the, the fires of evangelism in church planning tend to, to, to take off. And then it comes back for us as well. Now, here's the place I want to take my little survey. So everybody take your worship folder. There's a survey on that little thin panel there. And so everybody, right now, this is everybody, tear it off. Zip. And if you didn't get enough worship folders for the whole family, any old scrap of paper will do. Okay? So let's walk through. You just write down on your scrap of paper which one of these four you are. All right? Number one, I came to faith before I was 18 growing up at Bethlehem. So, if you're in the youth ministry, you came to faith through your mom and dad or youth ministry here before you were 18, that's the one you would check. Number two, although I did not grow up at Bethlehem, by God's grace, I was brought to saving faith through the witness of someone or some ministry of Bethlehem. That's the one I'm really interested in. I want to know how we're doing, because, you know, as churches get old, they tend to just kind of coast on their laurels and they're not real aggressive in evangelism and and they grow by kind of attracting believers to do their style, and it's not the healthiest thing. I'd like to know how fruitful we are. Was it in a service? Was it through the witness of one of our people? Was it whatever? If, if it was Bethlehem people that under God were the instrument to bring you to Christ, that's the one you'd check. Number three, when I came to Bethlehem, I was already a believer who was brought to faith by people who were not part of Bethlehem. I expect that to be hundreds of people in this room, so check that one off if that's you. And that, that's, I presume, where most of the visitors would be. I, I don't know. But maybe number four, I have not yet put my faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. I really want to know how many unbelievers typically come on a Sunday morning. So would you be honest, please? Just be honest. Don't No signing on these sheets, no names, just an age there. There may be some interesting correlations of age things if we tabulate them. And uh, check one of those. So then tear it off, and when you leave, throw it in the basket. And my concern here in taking this survey is I just kind of get the lay of the land on how we've done over the last years of evangelism here at Bethlehem. Because I, my own gut desires and feeling is that Evangelism is not a mainly a Sunday morning event. It's a marketplace event. And our people are evangelists 24-7, I pray. So that's number five. To plant a church will, I think, breathe fire into the smoldering embers of evangelism. Number six. Planting a strong church would mean that geographically some of you get closer to the church. Which is a good thing because if you live in the same neighborhood with your church, you are much more likely to talk to your neighbors about where you go to church and invite them to be a part of the community of faith. If you drive 40 minutes here, it's unlikely that you are thinking in terms of your neighbors doing the same thing. Which is not the healthiest thing 
for how to relate to people. It's nice that when you're talking to people about their faith and you lead them to Christ, be able to say, let's go to church. That's where Christians belong. And if you're driving 30, 40 minutes to get here, that's going to be very hard to do. So a church plant would result in some people being closer. And my prayer would be that this thing would so take hold of some people, they'd move to be near the new church. There are people that move to be near Bethlehem. We encourage it. Come into the city. Houses are cheaper. I used to say cheap. But now with this boom we've had recently, they're not as cheap. But still, move into the city. It's a great place to minister and be. Well, wherever this church goes, I hope people go there. I hope they move there. It's a great way to guide your life is move near it and then take people to it. Finally, number seven. Planting a passion for God, a new, strong, God-centered church, would reduce the tendency to rely too heavily on one man's preaching ministry. This is always big in our discussions. God ordains leaders. It is right and good that there be preachers, elders, teachers. That's good. He uses them. But woe to us if the attachment is too strong. When the Apostle Paul you don't get any greater than the Apostle Paul and how the churches loved him, loved his ministry. When the Apostle Paul was put in prison, he knew the emotional effect that that was having on the churches. So he wrote like this, 2 Timothy 2.9. I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not chained. See the point? Yes, they've shut me down, they think. But no, the word of God is not bound. It is the power of God and the salvation for all who believes. Open your mouths and God will use you. Open your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians 3. I chose this text to end on. I think I can do this in about five to seven minutes. All of the first three chapters of the book of Corinth is about undue attachment to leaders. And the threat it is posing to this church. Chapter 1, verse 12. Each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas or Peter, I am of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21. So then let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. All things present and to come are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And right here in our text, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. When one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men, meaning not spiritual, just acting in a carnal, human way and not a spiritual way? You remember what Jesus said? I think Paul got this from Jesus. Matthew 23, 8. Do not be called rabbi, 
for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. When I came to Bethlehem, first thing they did was paint my name on the sign, Dr. John Piper. I made them change it. And we took the doctor off. They felt proud to have a doctor come. Well, scratch that. I'm Pastor John. That's a good title. That's a big title. There are excesses. Now, let's see what Paul says to cut away the excess of attachment. Two things about leaders, two things about God, one thing about Jesus, and we'll be done. And it goes quickly. Verses 6 and 7, Paul's talking. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth, finish it, is everything. Now that's a bold, I think, overstatement. Because he has just said, we are servants through whom you believed. He said, we're waterers, we're planters. What do you mean? Nothing. That's what he says, though. He who plants, he who waters are nothing. They are nothing. They are not anything. So that's the first thing to say about a leader. Zero. Now, it's an overstatement. If you press it in logical consistency, oh, it can't mean that because in the previous verse, he just said they were servants through whom we believe. So that's important to have a channel through whom you can believe. Okay, we won't press it. We'll just say it. You're nothing. We'll just say it. And you handle it. You handle this literary device. What does it mean? It means something. When you use bold overstatement, you are trying to make a point that is very important. And the point here is there is too much attachment to Paul and Apollos here. So what you need to hear is Paul is nothing. And Apollos is nothing. And if it helps you handle that, say, in comparison to God, who is everything. May God be everything at Bethlehem. May God be everything at Bethlehem. So I've said two things. One thing about leaders, one thing about God. Leaders are nothing. God is everything. Here's my second Pair. Verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. So that's the second thing to say about the leaders. Take the staff at Bethlehem or the elders or choose another church. They're one. So don't boast in one above the other because... If you boast in the one above the other, if you have an excessive attachment to one above the other, you're, you're pulling this thing, you're threatening this beautiful thing. It's called one. Planting, watering. One. Why? Because if you plant and don't water, you get no fruit and no plant. If you water and there's been no seed planted, you can water that ground all day long. Nothing's coming out. They're one. 
You must have planting, you must have watering, or you get no fruit, you get no plant. They're one. Don't pull them apart by excessive attachment to the one and not the other. God is everything. That's my second thing about leaders. They're one. Here's the second thing about God. Verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Bethlehem, you're God's field. God owns Bethlehem. God owns Bethlehem. So now I've said two things about God. He's everything and He owns the field. And two things about leaders. They're nothing and they're one in their nothingness. And now the last thing is about Jesus. Verse 11. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And I cry out, O Christ, be the foundation of everything. Be the foundation of this church. Be the foundation of the families. Be the foundation of the marriages. Be the foundation of the child rearing. Be the foundation of singleness. Be the foundation of small groups. Be the foundation of Sunday school. Be the foundation of a church plant. Oh, be the one and only deep, unshakable, always reliable foundation. Like we sang in the first part of the service. Jesus, you're the one foundation. Hoping you're secure. So, two things about leaders. They're nothing and they're one. Two things about God. He gives the growth as everything and he owns the church. And Christ is the foundation of everything. So here's my closing question. Will God give the growth of this vision? That's the question. Will we trust him to do it? Will we trust Him to do it? If we are looking to God to do it, it will mean a focused prayer effort in this year. Families will be, begin to pray about this. You'll find it coming up in your individual life and in your family life and in your small groups. Oh God, breathe upon the vision we heard on January 13. Let it happen. Breathe it down. Because if you don't do it... It isn't going to happen. At least it won't be a Christ-exalting, God-centered, Bible-saturated, mission-mobilizing, justice-pursuing church. It may be some figment of some leader's imagination, but it won't be what you're calling it to be. So make it happen. And I pray that it will be soul-searching time at Bethlehem and God will birth the dream. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask now that you, the, the giver of the growth, I have watered a vision this morning in my nothingness. And I beg of you, leave it not to human resources because we will be just that, nothing. But if you would be pleased to breathe upon this vision, then today could mark the beginning of an era at Bethlehem, which we would look back upon in a decade or 15 years and say, thank you, thank you 
for what you have wrought in the planting of a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples through your Son, Jesus. Would you stand for a benediction? And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.